gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, full disclosure, um, I'm starting this a little later than I planned, which for which I have to apologize to Adam, who wanted me to get it done early. But as he feared, uh, I might not be in the shape to do it because um, last night I had all the interns and any DC staff who wanted to come over uh, to Shea Goldberg. Uh, for uh, a party. And um, there were libations. My my beautiful and talented wife, who is really a fantastic cook, she pulled out the big guns. And even though I did a lot of the grilling, um, it's her recipe and it's, it's, it's... Anyway, we did the cherry... We did our cherry Coke glazed uh, ribs. And um, they were... Excellent, as always. It's kind of one of those dishes that you just know people are going to like. If they like ribs, if they like good things, um, and in the, with the exception of poor Adam, who's kosher, um, eat pork. So, uh, but also there was a, there was, there was brown liquor, there was beer, and um, I was outrageously overserved. And um, so I, if I seem, less than um, fully sharp this morning. Uh, you should blame the people who threw that party. It was really outrageous. Um, I got to say, though, it's, you know, it's nice. You know, it, Steve and I talk about this a lot. Um, we have we have a really nice culture at the dispatch. And what I mean by that is, like, you know, Steve and I, it, it's very easy to talk a big game about what kind of office culture you're going to create and what kind of, you know, what kind of um, people you're going to hire and all that. But it's basically a crapshoot about how they're all going to get along with each other. And I'm not saying everything has been perfect at the dispatch or that we haven't had, you know, issues and tough conversations and all the rest. But on the whole, just like no one's a jackass. Um, at least no one's a jackass deliberately and people are really respectful. And I think there's some filter self-selection bias given, you know, the kind of thing that we're trying to do and the climate in which we did it, that, um, people sort of get that up front when they're applying, um, to work with us. And, um, I just, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just kind of proud of it. It's just, it was a nice bunch of people almost all of whom were younger than me, but that's, you know, they'll be punished for that. Um, and uh, it was good to, and I, I didn't get to spend as much time with some of the interns as I probably should have. Um, um, but they seemed like a really great crop of kids. And um, anyway, I'm just, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just kind of proud of who we've got. Um, so anyway, uh, but I'm also hungover and, and, sentimental and and all that kind of stuff so take it for what you will what should we talk about um it seems like and I, I don't know maybe i think i'm probably gonna write something about this we'll see um but it seems like we are heading into 
increased um, asininity on the issue of the war in Ukraine, I think in part, it makes sense. Um, and it may just be a blip, but, you know, whenever Biden is out front on something, whether it's Bidenomics or war in Ukraine or student loans or whatever, um, whether he's right or wrong, like because of negative polarization and because of partisanship and, and all that, um, the, the most intense parts of the right react to that and make that a new thing or, 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 or a renewed thing. And so just, you know, going from the algae plumes on Twitter and whatnot, it seems pretty clear that like the anti-NATO, anti-intervention, isolationist, you know, you pick your labels, we can talk about isolationism later, I guess, is spiking. And um, I know there were a bunch of Republicans who tried to kill aid to Ukraine in the budget authorization bill. And uh, I got to say, look, I, I, I kind of don't get it. I mean, let me put this right. I get it. I get, I get some of the arguments. I mean, there are credible, colorable, defensible arguments about this isn't our business, all that kind of thing. Um, there are legitimate concerns that, you know, we're being kind of spoon-fed a uh, one-way narrative from Ukraine about their corruption and, you know, political corruption and all that kind of stuff. There are all sorts of things to, like that you can legitimately be concerned about. Um, and I'm perfectly fine to have those, those conversations. I just don't find any of them like adding up to an argument for not wanting Ukraine to win and not want doing what we can to help Ukraine win. I mean, I just like, we can make the lists of pros and cons and the pros for helping Ukraine just seem to wildly outweigh the cons. Um, which is different than saying there are no cons because there obviously there are. It's, it's expensive. We're, we got debt out the yin-yang. There is a non-zero. I'm not sure it's non-trivial. It's not, I'm not sure that there's a non-zero chance that this could escalate into an actual nuclear thing. I think for all sorts of reasons, that's very, very, very unlikely. But, you know, if we've learned anything about black swan this and, you know, low probability, terrible things that is that, you know, low probability things happen. Oh, that reminds me, at some point I want to talk to you guys about ergodicity. We'll, we'll come back to that a bit. I'm not sure I have the neurons this morning to do it today. Uh, where was I? You know, there are these clips from Cornell West. RFK Jr. said this, and it's the basic position of a lot of the sort of pro-Russia right that we provoked Russia into invading Ukraine. And I know I've talked about this before, but I just find this just like perverse and stupid and really kind of shameful. I mean, there, I guess there's, there's a non-stupid, non-perverse, non-shameful form of the argument. It's still not persuasive, which doesn't ascribe blame to the United States so much as just it's an argument about causation. Uh, like you can analytically think that, but for America's actions and, 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 and NATO's actions and expanding NATO and all that, Russia wouldn't have done this. I think that's wrong, but like you can make that argument. It's another thing to make the argument that Russia was, or even to insinuate or, or leave unrebutted or un, um, 
rejected uh, the claim that somehow Russia's invasion of Ukraine is justified by the West's actions. Because there's like, there's zero justification of any kind for what Russia has done. Zero. Like, so like, again, this is like a longstanding thing of mine. There's a difference between explanations and excuses. You know, I can explain why I robbed a liquor store or, you know, why I ch- cut off the heads of my neighbor's garden gnomes. And I can say, oh, it's because I was really angry or I really wanted the money or like, the, you know, I wanted to buy a PlayStation or whatever, right? I can give you all the explanation. I can give you chapter and verse and the TikTok about why I did something. None of those things are excuses for doing it. You know, and, and there are times where you can have an excuse for doing something bad, right? You know, the whole steal a loaf of bread to feed your starving family kind of thing. That's all fine. I get that. But in our culture these days, we have this weird tendency of thinking that if I explain why I have the position I have, if I explain why I did the thing I did, or if I explain why I broke the rules, that that somehow justifies breaking the rules. And I have this theory, I'll get back to Russia in a second. I have this theory that it's it's tied up with the stuff I, I talk about, about like romanticism, right? About the authenticity and legitimacy and superiority of feelings. And I, I you know, it's 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 a byproduct of this thing in our therapeutic culture where if you get really in touch with your feelings and you explain why you cheated on your wife or why you slapped your kid or why you um you know, quit your job or set fire to the gazebo. I don't know. I'm making things up, right? Why you did the things you did. If you can really get in touch with your feelings and demonstrate or explain that you are actually acting in concert and in, in, in response to your authentic, true self, that somehow that gives you moral cover for doing something. The core of sort of, uh, you know, ethics, morality, Uh, both Christian and Jewish and secular, you know, I mean, or atheist or whatever. Um, If if you take this stuff seriously, right, and you actually like read about it, the essence of, of ethical conduct, of moral conduct, isn't to listen to your, listen to your gut, listen to your heart kind of thing. It's to sort of deny your, your, your impulses and your instincts. And I think this is one of the key like differences between sort of philosophical small C conservatives and, um, and all sorts of sort of progressives and populists of the left and the right. And that if you take it as a given that human nature is flawed, that human nature, that our wants and desires and our passions, as, as like David Hume would say, can lead us astray and that you need to conquer your passions with, with reason and with rightly formed conscience. Right? This is like the, there's a whole postmodern uh, indictment of reason as being shabby and misleading and if, and if, and if, and, and, and uh, uh, sterile, right? There's this, and insufficient to, to lots of things. And, and there are times when reason is not enough. And I would like Russ Roberts' great book about wild problems it illustrates a bunch of them. But, you know, and then there are, there are even fringes where they say that, you know, like 
reason is just essentially a white male construct and it's it's just one way of 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 interpreting reality and it has we privilege it too much and all this kind of stuff blah 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 fine uh, like there are interesting arguments and all that stuff i think it's anybody who gets too upset at reason um is kind of telling on themselves but fine there are there are there are areas where you know um reason is not sufficient you know and I, i'm a big fan of gk chesterton you know and he makes the point that the purely rational man will not marry the purely rational soldier will not fight um that you need commitments that are above and beyond pure rational sort of self-interest stuff but that's sort of the point i'm trying to get at is that oh i'm sorry i know i'm rambling so the part of the reason why i think reason is important is that's how you reach to other people's conscience it's it's a way to actually have them figure out how you can persuade them to what the ethical moral position should be if you always go with your gut if you always go with your passions if you just always go with if you always give in i mean like the, a lot of judeo christian you know biblical morality is about not giving in to temptation. And, you know, it's like people don't realize that when they say, go with your instincts, be true to yourself, you know, uh, act on your feelings. That's just another way of saying give in to temptation in a lot of cases, not in every case, obviously, you know, but in reality, when people are trying to exhort you to do the right thing and they say, you know, go with your feelings. What they're really saying is go with your conscience and they're just using the wrong words because one of the things your conscience does that one of the things that your uh, reasoning faculties do is explain to you your instincts are trying to lead you in and passions are trying to lead you into temptation. And this is the problem I have. This is why I have such a big problem with the people conflating or confusing explanations and excuses when we explain what we did just because we were following through on our emotions and our feelings, that in no way is an excuse. Most murders, most crimes of passion are um, people acting on their feelings. The moral thing to do is say, you know, I really want to kill this guy for cutting me off in traffic, but that would be wrong. And so anyway, that brings me back to Russia, right? Um, on this Russia stuff, you hear people all the time say, well, Russia feels this and Russia feels that. Russia feels encircled. And they may or may not be right. I mean, I think they're logically right or directionally right. But um, feelings, um, first of all, anthropomorphizing an entire country into feels is problematic in its own right. But what people tend to do is... Um, say that because Russia has these feelings, therefore, if we do anything that annoys Russia, it's our fault. When, when Russia responds, you know, when Russia escalates, when Russia invades another country, when Russia adopts as a matter of law the, the position that their soldiers can rape and murder and torture people and will not be held accountable, um, that's really our fault. And that's nonsense. It's nonsense analytically. It's on. It's nonsense uh, um, as realpolitik, and it's particularly nonsense morally. Russia is the author of its actions. Putin 
is the author of Russia's actions more than anybody else. And, you know, one of the nice things about talk about analyzing authoritarian regimes is you can really reduce it to a handful of bad actors as the prime culprits, because when you have an authoritarian regime that doesn't allow dissent and has no real checks and balances and has no real democracy, the guy who calls the shots is calling the shots. He just gets to be blamed for calling the shots. America and Western democracies generally do all sorts of stuff that it's really hard to like say this person is to blame or that those three people did it because we have competing institutions. We have politicians are answerable to, 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 to voters. Um, it's a big sloppy movable feast that um, I think a lot of people, a lot of foreigners when analyzing the United States don't get that. I mean, like uh, ha, uh, John Pedorts and I were talking about this on Glop the other day about how dumb some of the bribery stuff about Biden was. Um, not, not that it's not a real issue. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but that, you know, Hunter Biden, who's a grifting, skeezy guy, in 2017 is shaking down Chinese business people. I don't know what these guys really are. You know, they could be cutouts for the Communist Party. Who knows? But, you know, shaking them down for money, saying that, you know, my dad has all of this influence and he's going to, you know, either punish you or get what you want done and all the rest. And the thing is, in 2017... Donald Trump was president. Republicans hold, controlled both houses of Congress. And Joe Biden was an ex-vice president in his 70s. I'm not saying he didn't have any influence, but like you, you have to live pretty far away from the United States and not really understand how things get done if uh, you think that like, oh, I can, I can, I can take care of this. I can, I can get this fixed. I know a guy who can get Joe Biden to help. Um, Joe Biden did not have a lot of, you know, a lot of pull in 2017 Washington. Um, and I think that this is one of these things that people, particularly in authoritarian regimes, don't, who don't realize how we don't have one set of elites in this country. Don't get me started on all that. We have competing factions of elites if you and your party are out of power, you don't have a lot of, you know, a lot of pull to get things done. But like what people do is they it's in foreign policy, it's called sort of mirroring where you assume that your adversaries operate and think the same way you do. They see American elites as this uh, homogenized blob of, you know, like the American Politburo. Everyone's powerful. Everybody knows somebody, blah, 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 blah. They can all pull strings. And um, they don't. It just doesn't work that way in the United States. And again, I'm not saying he has no influence, had no influence in 2017. But, you know, whenever I kind of, I see people making, pushing back on me on this in comments and email and stuff and they're they're like, the idea that a senator or a vice president doesn't have any influence is ridiculous. And I never said that, but he wasn't a senator and he wasn't vice president when at least some of this Hunter Biden stuff was allegedly happening. 
I think that one of the things a lot of people don't understand about influence peddling, and I'm going to get back to Russia at some point, but um, one of the things I think people don't understand about influence peddling or, or rainmaking in, in Washington is that so much of it is like BS. What was it Jack Abramoff was doing? He was taking money from two different tribes of Native Americans, one that had a casino, the other one that wanted a casino. And he was taking money from both. And he was telling the, the, the natives that wanted a casino, um, he was telling them he was fighting for them every single day to get them a casino license, right? Meanwhile, he was telling the other Native American tribe, I'm doing everything I possibly can every single day to stop the other tribe from getting a license. And both tribes believed them and both paid them tens of thousands of dollars a month. I mean, I can't remember what the details are beyond that. Um, but that kind of thing happens a lot in that kind of grifting world. Um, if you've never, if you ever watched The Wire, um, you know, Stringer Bell gets gets suckered by essentially this, this uh, by, well, he's a politician, right? Um, um, I can't remember his name into believing that you can just bribe your way into getting all of these government contracts. And he's, he soaks Idris Ilba for, you know, I can't remember how many tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of bribe money. And it turns you know, that it was, you know, that there, there was no, no bribing to get the contracts. It's like you fill out the forms correctly and you hope you get the contract. And what the, what the rainmakers do is that when they're successful, they take credit, and when they fail, they say, I'm going to need more money. You know, we almost had it. And that kind of thing, you know, it's not just with, like, outright bribery kind of thing. It's that kind of thing with all sorts of consulting in Washington. But, you know, that's sort of what it sounds to me like what Hunter was doing. And, again, we don't know whether – I've got to get a less squeaky chair. Can you guys hear that? I apologize. We don't know how much – Joe Biden knew um, and when he knew it about what his son was up to. Um, I think it's pretty much established that Biden has lied about not knowing anything. You know, just the idea that Biden on a flight back from Ukraine didn't ask or from China didn't ask Hunter Biden, didn't ask his son. So what'd you do while you were here? Right. I mean, um, uh, it doesn't mean Hunter then said, well, dad, I conned a whole bunch of people out of, you know, a huge pile of money telling them that I was going to get you to um, approve this or deny that um, because I was selling your, I was selling influence with you. Um, he could have said, I'm going to the museums or I, whatever. But like, anyway, I think Joe Biden knew something um, and what he knew, you know, is uh, something to be figured out. Um, gosh, I really apologize for how Miranda, meandering this thing is. Maybe Adam will just say, you know, take this out, this whole podcast out behind the barn and shoot it, and we'll skip it this week. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have 
unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So anyway, on the Russia, just very quickly to close it out on the Russia thing, you know, you had Matt Gates talking about how we should ask Russia to join NATO. Um, and the thing I think is hilarious is that it was Eric Bowling interviewing him and and Bowling treats this idea as like not only kind of s- serious, but obvious. He's just like, oh, no question. That would be better, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's just so profoundly stupid. And there's just so much unseriousness running around about know how we're dealing how we should deal with with russia and ukraine and i know people think i'm you know some perfidious warmongering bagel snarfing um neocon but like i i think the criticisms that biden isn't doing enough are much stronger on their own terms than the argument that he's doing too much you know if, if we're going to will the end, which is Ukrainian victory or Russian defeat, which are not exactly the same thing, we should will the means, right? And that doesn't mean providing nuclear weapons and it doesn't mean sending American troops because part of the, the broader definition of what a policy win here is, is Ukrainian victory without American troops fighting, right? I mean, that's a perfectly legitimate public policy goal. Um, a foreign policy goal. And so like you take this, this stuff with the, the cluster bombs, which I think are terrible weapons. And um, I don't blame people for wanting to ban them. 
I do think that people get weird about investing more more morality in some weapons over other weapons. I'm not saying that's completely unreasonable. I mean, there are examples like mustard gas is really like we should ban that. I don't like that. Um, and I can probably come up with a rational argument for why that's different in part because it's so indiscriminate. Um, but, uh, you know, there are, there are reasons to use cluster munitions. There are reasons where there are times when cluster munitions are superior to other forms of weaponry. That's one of the reasons why the United States didn't sign on to the treaty banning them is that, first of all, we have enemies who still use them. And second of all, there are situations where if you need to clear out certain kinds of like trenches and that kind of thing, the military people say at least that, cluster munitions are better than some of the alternatives. Like if you're going to do some giant, if the alternative is cluster munitions, which are, you know, basically a bomb or artillery shell or a missile that opens up and becomes like a whole bunch of hand grenades. In effect, it can take out multiple personnel and multiple um, pieces of military equipment and transportation, that kind of thing all at once. If the option is between using that and using um, what do they call them, a hyperbaric bomb, you know, which is one of these things that uh, basically kills most of the people it kills because it consumes all of the oxygen in a given area. Um, it also blows the hell out of a lot of things, right? Um, that's going to kill more people, more conceivably more civilians than the cluster munitions. But there's something about, it's kind of like shark attacks. There are very few shark attacks, but there's something just so scary and so uh, horrific about it to our imagination, not to our imagination in the sense of that we're making it up, but like to, um, to imagine it happening to you um, that we freak out about it, you know, and like the fact that kids pick these things up, the unexploded ones and die from them and farmers years later, it's gross. I completely agree with that. But, um, you know, for me, the dispositive thing is that this is Ukraine wanting to use it on its own soil to kick out an invader. This isn't Russia, which is using, has been using cluster munitions from the beginning against civilian targets where they think that like the, the unexploded rate, I wrote a column about this. I'm sorry if I'm, and we've talked about it on the dispatch podcast. So I'm sorry if you know all this stuff already or heard me talk about it already. Russia thinks that maiming kids and civilians and terrifying the civilian population is a valuable feature of these weapons, not a bug, right? The Ukrainians are just simply trying to break Russian positions in their counteroffensive to kick invaders out of their own country. And, you know, so Ukrainians have every incentive to use these things sparingly, discriminately, um, and to have a plan about how to clean up the duds. But keep in mind, they're going to be, they're going to be unexploded, cluster munitions all over Ukraine for years, no matter what, because the Russians have been using them. And I just think that the, the moralizing on a lot of this sort of just really misses a lot of context. The one place where I think, and this is why I brought it up, that criticism of Biden on this decision has some teeth, is the Ukrainians wouldn't need cluster munitions if we'd given them F-16s already. Or we forget us giving them F-16s, right? If we allowed other countries to give Ukraine F-16s earlier, 
they wouldn't have these problems. If we'd given them tanks earlier. Now, there, there's, a, there's a realpolitik argument, I don't like it, that says letting Russia bleed out in Ukraine for years is in America's interest. I think that is a, if you can take all the morality out of it, there's a strong argument there, right? We're, we're just, yeah, Russia's going to be stuck in a quagmire that ruins their reputation, destabilizes their government, wrecks their army, their military for a generation, you know, let them get caught down, bogged down in that quagmire that actually has negative spillover effects for China as well. I think that's a serious argument. I reject it on moral grounds, which is because it's just like, that's gross. And I don't think that's what Biden is trying to do. But he wouldn't need to send cluster munitions if we'd sent him the better stuff earlier. And this pattern that we have over and over and over again, where the Ukrainians have to ask, you know, they have to be like the kid and say anything. I want my $2. I want my $2. You know, they have to ask like 50 times for everything. And then they get it. And then they move on to the next thing that they're asking for. Like if you, if, if, if you will the end, will the means. And like we should have just given this stuff earlier. You know, fine, strings attached about, you know, watching the wallet, no blank checks, get them trained up. All, all those things are sort of fine. But this dragging your feet, dragging it out thing makes no sense to me. Particularly when we're talking about how we eventually want this country to join NATO and join the EU and be, you know, successful and all that. Like, just get on with it already and do what we can to help. And um, because the longer you drag this out, the more you invite people in the States to get exasperated and exhausted with it. It's like we're negotiating with ourselves about this stuff. And that dragging out, I think, is a danger to support for Ukraine, is a bigger danger for support to Ukraine than anything else. Anyway, I'm sure we'll have time to talk about this more later. Um, so Scott Lindsaycomb of uh, Bespoke Nacho fame, prominent neoliberal shill and dispatch news of their writer, uh, he wrote about The Bear, uh, this TV show. Uh, I guess it's on Hulu, but it's an FX show. And life is weird. He makes the case, you know, arguing about how like urban regulations and, and um, red tape and all that is holding back people um, who want the American dream. I highly recommend it. Go read it. We took it out from behind the paywall. Hopefully some of you will go read it and say, huh, this is great. This is the kind of thing I want to read all the time. I am now going to become a subscriber to the dispatch. But I just want to make a point. It's funny. I, I said I had this I tweeted this thing couple weeks ago before 4th of July and people keep quoting it back to me <laughs> even though more than a few times people were like yeah someone tweeted blah 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 and they're describing what I, my tweet um and uh anyway I think it was Dave Weigel had had said on Twitter that God created the bear so that people who were and I'm paraphrasing um people who obsessed over succession on Twitter um, will know what they sounded like. And I thought it was funny and I retweeted it. And then like a day later, I was like, you know, I've been thinking about this and I think there's something that needs to be said. And I made the point that bear, the bear in some ways, and I'm not, I'm not going to give you any spoilers. The bear in, in some ways is the exact opposite of succession. 
Now, I enjoyed Succession. I didn't love it the way a lot of people do. I have very um, strong feelings about Adam McKay's, quote unquote, serious work. So in Succession, you have horrible people. They're all horrible. Some are more horrible than others. Some are more pathetic than others. Um, Some are meaner than others. But they're all pretty much terrible people, at least among the main characters. And there's nobody to root for. There's really nobody to sympathize with. And like empathizing with them is almost dangerous to your soul. Quick reminder about what empathy is. Empathy is to, at least in the, you know, empathy only enters the English language, I think in like 1907. It's, it comes from a German word, which mean, which was picked up by the German historicist school to mean feeling your way into. And basically it's this ability to put, is to feel someone else's feelings, right? And so all I mean by that is like, if you're, if you start empathizing with these horrible people, yeah, they, 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 they should be upset that they didn't make $6 billion off of cheating somebody or whatever, right? Then, you know, that's not great. Um, it's kind of like related to the stuff I was talking to Chris Leah about, you know, like when we start worshiping villains in movies, that's, that's not great. You shouldn't like, shouldn't be emotionally taking Hannibal Lecter's side on a lot of things because he eats people. He eats people without their consent, which I think is a really important point. And so succession, I also, and this is my problem with Adam McKay, um, Adam McKay doesn't like America. And he, he craps on America all the time. He says terrible things about America. He, all of his political stuff mocks America, mocks capitalism, mocks you know, uh, the free market mocks the stupidity of people who like America a lot and all that kind of stuff. And I don't mean to be too harsh. Just I don't mean to be unduly harsh, just duly harsh. And I remember this has stuck with me ever since I, I think I first heard John Pod say this years ago where McKay had said something really crappy about America and Pod went nuts saying, you know, look, this is the only country in the world that could make someone like Adam McKay wildly rich and successful and popular and powerful. This is the only country in the world that can, that someone can monetize fart jokes and all the rest uh, to the point where you have multiple homes. And yet McKay like seems to show no gratitude for it whatsoever. And his depiction of, at least from the stuff that's trickled down to me, maybe like I'm being wildly unfair and someone will send me a note and I'll apologize. And I want to be clear, I like a lot of Adam McKay comedies. My problem with things like Succession and some of the other stuff that he does is basically it's the same kind of writing. It's the same kind of jokes. They just do it deadpan. It's kind of like taking Weekend at Bernie's and putting it through some chat GPT thing into German and pawning it off as some sort of dark existential Ibsen play. If you actually listen to a lot of the dialogue in succession, it's kind of Anchorman-like in how, I mean, it's funny, but it's also really stupid. Um, It doesn't go as far as Anchorman, right? Like no one says diversity, what's that? Oh, it's a large wooden ship. But 
there's a lot of like just really over the top insults that, you know, like, you know, would be perfectly normal in Anchorman. You're a smelly pirate hooker, right? That kind of stuff. But because they do it deadpan, it seems like incredibly witty, dark dialogue. The depiction, like if you go watch that Paul Cantor panel, I've mentioned a few times now, uh, we'll put a YouTube link to the YouTube thing. Some kid asked about, you know, Succession's depiction of democracy in America or something like that. And Chris Leah gave a very nice, polite, you know, critical response. And I was like, dude, we got to go deeper than that. Succession's depiction of how Fox News works and how democracy works, and how journalism works and how business works and how capitalism works is just stupid. It's just, I mean, it's, it's just, it's fine as comedy or as dark satire, right? But like, there are people who don't know that that's what it is, including I think sometimes the the creators of the show. I think that they think they're really shining a light on something. It's just ham-fisted stuff. And I, I say this as someone who's got a pretty good record of being critical of Fox. Anyway, it's Succession is all about these extremely rich people who are full of senses of entitlement about their wealth and full of contempt of normal Americans. And the bear is about normal Americans who just want to pursue the American dream, who want to pursue their just their personal dreams. They want to be excellent. They truly want to be excellent for excellence's own sake. They all have problems. They all have demons. They all have um, things to get over. But they're all capable of redemption and they want it. They want to be better people. And because they want to be better people, they are better people. You know, that's the thing. All people can be better than they are. And no one should get on too high a horse about how they're better, better person than, than some other person. But one of the things that marks a good person from a less good or bad person is their desire to be a better person. And, you know, this is one of these lessons that's taken me a long time to really internalize. It's like, you know, trying to be a better person is a good thing to do all the time. And I don't necessarily mean about, like, eating right and getting exercise and all that, although by all means people should do that, starting with me. I mean just, like, trying harder to be nice to people, trying harder to respect people, trying harder to hear their perspective, trying harder to help people. Like, that's, that's a worthwhile thing to try. All the time. And you don't have to be sanctimonious about it and all that kind of thing. You just, it's, it's a good thing. And the thing about the bear is these are all people with all sorts of issues. They have this, what, the things that unite them are the desire to improve, the desire to be better, the desire to commit to some project that's larger than themselves, that's dedicated to true excellence, and then they introduce this thing in the second season, you know, this other part of it, which is service, service to people. And it really is the antidote um, to all the crap in succession, right? Because in, in succession, it's all about masters of the universe moving pieces around through mergers and acquisition as sort of a zero-sum game where the rich are always rich and it's just who's comparatively getting richer at a faster rate than somebody else. And... In the bear, it's about real human beings who are trying really hard to figure out, you know, how to be good people and also how to succeed. And, and so 
I thought Weigel's tweet was funny and all that. It's it, the bear is morally uplifting, and Succession is uh, a giant dark Stygian wet blanket um, thrown over any sense of uplift. Right? It is it is a show of despair, and the bear is the show is a show of hope, and I think that's that should be celebrated and congratulated. Oh, so yeah, this is another thing I've been thinking about writing about. So, I, you know, I apologize in advance if I, well, if I write about it, I'll be more coherent. So um, maybe I shouldn't apologize. So I've been thinking a lot about this, you know, college admission stuff. I wrote a thing a couple of weeks ago about how I'm not completely on board with getting rid of legacy admissions. I'm not necessarily opposed to it. I just... Uh, <laughs> All right, so the first thing that bothers me, I'll just, um, I'll give you my feelings, and I think I wrote most of this out, but I think there's just a big category error when people say, what about legacy admissions when uh, you talk about getting rid of racial quotas? Maybe I talked about this on here too, so I'll be really short about this. You can make an argument against about why they should get rid of legacy admissions, which is basically like admissions primarily for the kids of people, of alumni, people who went to the school, presumably gave money to the school over the years, and then they want their kids to go there. You can make all sorts of perfectly good arguments that I'm, I'm very sympathetic to with. I probably agree with a lot of them that say you should get rid of the practice. You can't say it's affirmative action for white people, you, which a lot of people have said, um, including people like AOC and, and some others, because there's just the, the, at least from the data I've seen, certainly at Harvard, which is the, the example that um, Ocasio-Cortez used, was that 70% of legacy admissions are white. And she thought this was great proof that this was affirmative action for white people. The two problems with this. First is um, most of the legacy admissions that people are talking about actually get the required grades and test scores to get into the school they're just on the bubble because there are more people who are qualified than there are spaces for. And so it's something that pushes you over the top, all other things being equal. The standards for a lot of the sort of uh, racial quota stuff, they're not on the bubble. It's not all things being equal. Let's give, you know, if there's an equally qualified white or Asian kid, um, let's give it to the black kid. Um, since they all have the same grades and test scores, that would be a completely different argument. That's not what's been going on, right? Is that you've had kids with a much lower academic, much lower GPA, much lower test scores being pushed ahead of the line of people with better scores and better for qualifications on account of their race alone. And that's just different, right? You can say it's necessary. Lots of people do. You can say that, you know, it's a matter of restorative justice or, you know, a necessary sacrifice to the God of diversity, which is a giant wooden ship. You can say whatever you want. There are all sorts of arguments in favor of it. I disagree with them pretty profoundly for the most part. But that's not, it's just not the argument for legacy admissions. Oh, and the second problem with, with that 70% number is that about 71 to 75% of America identifies as white. So at least at the margins, the legacy admissions underrepresent white people, white applicants. So, uh, but anyway, I, I just don't like this, the 
this idea that because we have to get rid of one form of injustice, we're going to say this other thing is equally unjust or wrong. You can, I got no problem with you making an argument that it's unjust and wrong, but it's just a different thing, right? It's just a different thing than discriminating on the base of race. And I think there are a lot of people who want to have it both ways when it comes to questions of discriminating on the base of race. On the one hand, when it, they're discriminating on the base of race to help, you know, uh, African-American and Hispanic people or whatever, not Asians anymore, um, they say it's no big deal, right? It's just a factor. It doesn't really matter and all that kind of stuff. It's just, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's, it's, it's just a very light thumb on the scale kind of thing in the interest of diversity and all that kind of stuff. And on the other hand, we're constantly being told that race matters more than anything else in American life. And you kind of can't have it both ways, right? Either race is this incredibly important thing. And, um, and I think that there's a lot of nearest weapon to hand argumentation when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, but anyway, the thing I want to talk about, in, talking about the bear made me think about. Um, so there's been a lot of talk, and I've, I've endorsed this idea many times in the past. So I, I obviously don't think it's an incredibly stupid argument because it's been my position for years. Uh, but I'm having second thoughts on it. And it's this, put it all in the essay, right? Make the essay much more important. So you can get in there, the stuff about your race or your ethnicity, your gender, your sex, whatever. And, you know, they're going to have computers read these essays anyway to find key phrases and all that kind of stuff. And so you can say, hey, look, we didn't give points for race. We gave points for the essay, right? It's not a point system based on checking a box. It's a point system on, on the essay. First of all, I'm not entirely sure that it's going to get you around the racial discrimination stuff, but it might, you know, let's just say it does, right? Um, the thing that I, reason why I have second thoughts about the essay thing is, like, I, I watched my daughter go through uh, hell with all the college applications. It was during the pandemic where... Everyone was encouraging everybody, you know, like all these schools took common apps. So she applied to a crazy amount of schools. She had to do all of these essays for various things and follow-up essays and supplemental essays and yada, 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 yada. And it was amazing to me how many of the essay questions were about, were asking young people, I think by a fact of logic that most rising high school seniors going to college are young people asking them basically to describe themselves almost entirely in terms of their struggles with hardship in one way or the other, whether, and, and some were asking questions about like, have you ever been discriminated against or have been, you know, uh, judged by appearances or, you know, all sorts of different ways of basically asking these kinds of questions about your victim status and I think there's something bad for the culture that the sort of the ticket into uh, these elite institutions that are then the gateway to the, you know, the, the meritocracy, ask you to sort of define yourself, whether it's explicitly in racial or gender terms or anything else, as a victim, as someone who's like been uh, mistreated by society. It's particularly pernicious given that most people don't go to college and the people who go to elite universities, including, you know, elite universities and colleges, you know, including my daughter, I'm not, you know, um, disputing that. 
Um, most of them haven't had that hard a time, <laughs> you know? I mean, like, I'm not ashamed of the fact that my, my daughter hasn't had first order existential struggles against bigotry or for survival or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, she's had her ordeals like everybody else has, but like, it's weird that we are sort of incentivizing people to say the way, the best way to get into college is, or that's not the best way, but like an important asset in your portfolio for applying to college is, you know, particularly if you can't play water polo or sail or whatever, or play basketball, is coming up with an angle about how the system has treated you badly, particularly if it's discriminated against you in some way. I think it's counterproductive in one sense because anybody who's really got one of those stories is probably going to share it in their interview or their essay anyway. And but for the people who don't have those stories, forcing them to sort of come up with one and do this vigorous inventory of their life that allows them to spin themselves as a victim, that's just really unhealthy for society. And I guess like the way to think, uh, one way to think about it is, you know, what's wrong with asking essays about like, you know, defend your biggest intellectual passion, right? Um Defend your favorite artist. Or tell us, you know, what brings you joy? I mean, like, there are all sorts of questions. How do you define excellence, right? There are all sorts of questions that I think are better suited towards demonstrating the kind of student you're going to be than spinning yourself as, um, you know, the sort of hero martyr of some tale when you're only like 17 freaking years old. You know, by all means, I'm not saying that, like, if you're got remarried to a Klansman who, you know, like, abused you or whatever, tell that story, you know, by all means, like, uh, you know, go with it. But, like, forcing everybody to, to see themselves through that kind of prism, I just think it's distorting and bad for the culture. Um, and it's bad for the culture of these universities because everybody comes in with these sorts of pre-written, pre-framed narratives about their own victimhood. And again, I, I'm totally open to the idea that I'm overstating it, but I think there's something to this, at least at the margins, right? Is like we reward you know, one of the fundamental sort of conservative free market, public choice, philosophical wisdom things in the world going back forever is that um, you get more of what you subsidize, we subsidize a hell of a lot of grievance already in this culture. We subsidize a hell of a lot of whining in this culture. And when you subsidize whining, you get more whining. And I just have a, anyway, I, I don't, I've seen a couple pieces about how schools are thinking about what to do about essays and what a crisis, the LA Times had this piece about, you know, this crisis that this, Asian student was having because she wanted to write about how she had reported on a case of racial discrimination against black people or something like that. And now she doesn't know if telling the university that she's Asian, but did this other thing, whether that's, a, you know, forget victimhood, just like the idea that somehow like we should be among elite kids. And that's all we're really talking about here for the most part when it comes to these university questions. Even if the African-American applicants are, you know, uh, 
from solidly middle class uh, backgrounds, they're still sort of elite adjacent. And if they didn't get to, into that school, they get into the, the next one school, one rung down, and they're on their way to the meritocracy no matter what, right? Um, but just asking everybody to, to, to f- everybody who's going to these elite institutions to think of themselves in identity politics categories or be resentful at people who have the ability to identify themselves in identity politics categories, I think is, um, it's unhealthy. And you're like, you, you see these schools, and there's some crazy numbers about Brown, and I, I know about some other schools um, that my daughter has friends at, you know, where vast numbers of kids, sometimes like near majorities of kids, or in, uh, in case of one school, a super majority of kids say that they're on um, somewhere on the gender spectrum and that they're not, uh, strictly speaking, um, straight heterosexual, you know, like, you know, 50% or whatever, like, one of the reasons you get results like that is because culturally we're sort of subsidizing, we're incentivizing people to say these kinds of things. And one of the, you know, one of the older insights in life is that the the more you say something is true about this yourself, the more likely it is over time for you to convince yourself of it. Anyway, I just think that the cultural cues that we're sending through a lot of these institutions and through the major media are not helpful. I, you know, people know my position on gratitude. I, I, I just think we would be much better off if we had a lot more. I mean, that's the other thing about the bear, which I just love, is, yeah, there's there's some racial context to it, you know, because half the cast are black and from Chicago and all that kind of stuff. But that's just not part of the story. That's not what, that's not what defines these characters. The, char- you know, the, the African-American characters are these fully formed human beings who have differences from each other, they're not defined as sort of an archetype for a TV show. Oh, who's the black character? No, they're like a character. And it's really refreshing um, not to sort of have it be, you know, a meditation on racial strife in America. And, you know, some of it's implicit because you can get the context of where they're from and the lives they're living and all that kind of stuff. That's all great and that's all fine. But it's just not, it's not didactic the way a lot of things are. My wife, I should say, I know I sound like I'm a huge proselytizer of the show. My wife loves the show a lot more than I do. Um, I like it a lot. Um, um, and the thing I b- appreciate about it the most is I'm, I'm really good at predicting where a show is going. Um, I'm not super proud of this. It comes from years of experience of watching a lot of TV. Um, but it, drives, it can drive my wife crazy where I'll be like, oh, it's, he's going to turn out to be the murderer or, oh, that thing is going to turn out to be, you know, radioactive or whatever, you know, um, I'm just good at it. And the thing about the bear is it's really hard to predict where it's going to go. It's not formulaic at all. And now I'm, now I'm going to get an email from somebody saying, how can you say it's not formulaic? It fits this archetype of this thing with this family dynamic and all that. Fine, whatever. I find it very hard to predict where it's going to go because they seem like they're sort of fully formed human creatures with agency. Um, and there's a lot of contingency, which is sort of, again, kind of like the opposite of succession. All right. So again, apologize for the rambling and the incoherence. Hopefully Adam will fix most of it. Um, my apologies to Adam for getting this out late. And, uh, my only regret about, well, I have several regrets about last night, but one of them is, as I really should have gotten everybody, 
to pose for a picture with Zoe and Pippa because uh, the animals really enjoyed having the people over, including Zoe, which kind of surprised me. Um, there were a couple staffers who were just taking fistfuls of shedded fur off of her from petting her so much. And, um, and Pippa said, I love you to a lot of people. And a lot of people got to throw a tennis ball for her. And Gracie came out and said, you know, kneel before Gracie, love me. Um, and she got a lot of love. Um, it was just kind of cool to see. And we went fun to like post some pictures of all that stuff. All right. So I am racking up more podcasts. I got, um, but I leave, I think Wednesday night for Europe and then the, well, for, for Germany doing all this family stuff. And then from there, from Italy or wherever we're going to the UK for a wedding. And, and then I have a planned time off after that, but I'm going to try and keep the flow of podcasts coming. Um, I'm going to see if who can substitute hosts host when, if I have to miss stuff. Um, Steve said he could, a lot of people have asked for Sarah, no offense, Steve. And, you know, and then of course there's always Chris Dyerwalt who has the added benefit of sounding like me. I don't hear it at all, but lots of, every time he's on, you know, I get talk about how he's my audio doppelganger. Um, I, maybe I, I just hear the West Virginia and, and Chris too much to think that, but apparently we have similar tone and timbre, um, cause we're such just impressive masculine um, voices. Anyway, we'll figure it all out. And thanks again for listening. And please, if you can, become a subscriber to The Dispatch. It would mean the world to us. It helps us. I think it's incredibly obvious value for you. And I'll save you the big pitch for another time when I'm, I'm more coherent and can make it more rationally. But uh, now I'm just dragging my feet because I, I now I got to go sit down and write for three hours and I'm not sure my brain is up to it. So uh, thanks for listening and I will talk to you next time.